Where will you be five years from today? Have you ever tried to answer that question? Recently, friends of mine came across this meme that said this. The only thing all of us globally had in common five years ago was when asked this question, we would give the wrong answer. Where will you be five years from now? If I was to think back for myself, five years ago at this time, I was wrapping up seminary. I was in my final class, and Jen and I had great hopes and plans for what the future would hold for us. We knew God was going to use us in some incredible ways wherever he placed us. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, the words lockdown, pandemic, recession, being on Zoom calls all day, not part of my plan. You see, life is rather unpredictable and can be overwhelming at times. It takes unexpected turns and twists. Just when you think you've got everything figured out, something unexpected happens. Things like this pandemic. Some of us didn't get into dream schools, even though our test scores and everything were, were just right. Some of us lost jobs in the middle of all this. Some of us were working hard and suddenly have a nagging injury. The sale of a house fell through. You had plans to get married, and all of a sudden, now you are not able to yet to put that off. Some of us planned to travel, and now we're stuck at home. We had retirement planned out, and all of a sudden, our company is not honoring our pension. I could go on and on. There's so many unexpected challenges in life. But the bigger question is not whether we're going to face these challenges, but how we're going to face them and how we respond to them. Opinions abound online and over media and everywhere about how we ought to live during this time. I've read blog post after article after uh, you name it about how I should pick up a hobby, how I should rest more, how I should be productive more, how I should do all of these things in the middle of all this, enough to make my mind feel like a tennis ball going back and forth. How do you live in moments like this? How do you respond? Is it possible to find meaning and purpose in the middle of a fog? Is it possible to maintain perspective and focus when everything seems out of focus? In moments of uncertainty, are you able to live with confidence? For the next few moments, we'll take a look at Paul's answer to this question. We're back in the letter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where, and it's just an incredible letter because it resonates very well with the time and the challenges we're facing today. Let me take a moment to remind you of the context. Paul is writing a letter to the Thessalonian church, a young church that he had planted. But this was a church birthed into persecution. They had faced persecution from the Jewish community, the Roman community, the Thessalonian community. All of them because there was this new way of life that was a challenge to the old way of living. Now, in the middle of all this persecution and trial, the Thessalonians were starting to lose hope. And to them, Paul is writing. And this is how he writes in chapter 5, verse 18. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul's word to them. In the midst of your uncertainty... Be certain of God's will for you. 
See, for us as Christ followers, that is vital. It is important for us to know this and internalize it, that God has a plan, a desire, a purpose, a will for each of us. It is important for us to know that God has a plan for all humanity, past, present, and future, and that nothing happens in our lives, nothing happens in our world outside of his knowledge and outside of his will for all of us. When Scripture talks about God's will for us, it is often mentioned in one of three categories. And here they they are. First is the providential will of God. These are things in his plan that he's going to do regardless of our response to his actions. He's going to do them because of his nature, because of who he is as God, out of his goodness and grace for his people. Galatians 1.4 reminds us that the Father sent his Son to this earth to die and suffer for our sins. He provided a way of reconciliation back to him. We're reminded a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is coming back again to receive his saints. The book of Revelation, it talks about a day that we're all going to be judged based on our actions. These are all part of God's providential will. Things that he will do regardless of our response to them. Then there's a preceptive will of God. These are the precepts or the commands that God gives to his people. The first one referred to God's actions for us regardless of our response. The second set of his second will, his preceptive will, talks of our response in this relationship, what we have to do. You see, as Christ followers, there's a certain standard we're called to live by, a biblical standard that we're called to live by. These are things we don't have to pray about, we don't have to seek God about, we just do what Scripture tells us to do. A great example of this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. A preceptive will that says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain for sexual immorality. The commands, commandments God gives to his people in the Old Testament are part of this preceptive will. And like I mentioned before, you don't have to pray about whether you follow and you love your God. Just do it. We don't have to ask questions like, do I tra- treat everyone fairly regardless of their color or their skin? Just do it. Do I need to stand up for the voiceless or do I need to fight for the unborn or do I need to care for the widow and the orphan? We don't need special revelation from God because he's already commanded it to us in his scripture. Do these things. And that's his preceptive will for us. Finally, there's the personal will of God. This is what we often seek as Christians. We want to know what God has for us personally. A key to finding out what that is, is to know God's providential and preceptive will. Once we, once we know what he has done, and once we follow him where he's calling us to go, his personal will becomes evident in our lives. You see, each of us should spend time in God's presence seeking to know and understand to follow this will. Do I take this job? Do I move out of state? Do I date this person? Do I apply to this school? Do I make a career change in the midst of a pandemic? All these are part of God's personal will for you. What we have to realize is God is intimately involved in the details of our lives and longs for us to seek him. 
And in response, the scripture reminds us that when we do seek him, he provides us wisdom and guidance. Proverbs 3, 6 reminds us, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. In the midst of uncertainty, be certain of God's will for you. He's a providential will for all of us. He has a preceptive role that he invites us to live out in our lives and a personal and unique will for each of us. All of this leading to the next logical question. Well, what is the will of God? Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's preceptive will, where he's asking us to do three things. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Let's ask that same question we asked a little while ago. How do we stand in the midst of our, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our chaos? Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Now, I could wrap up my sermon right here. It's a great Sunday sermon, a great Sunday thought, a great devotional to say, hey, in the midst of all this, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Right? After all, Paul doesn't go into much more detail than this. It almost seems like he's running out of time and space, and he squeezes these last few imperatives in his letter. These aren't complicated things that he's asking us to do. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. After all, as Christians, we do those things, right? But if we're truly honest with ourselves, these are easier said than done. We like the idea, we like the concept, but practice is a completely different thing. You may be thinking, yes, you're right, it is easy to rejoice when things are good, when all is well. But what happens when things turn sour, when things go from bad to worse? Do you ex really expect me to be rejoicing? What happens in those moments uh, where we pray and we don't feel God's presence, where we feel like God is silent? Do you expect me to pray still? You may say, I'm, a us I'm usually a grateful person, but this year honestly has not given me enough reasons to be thankful. Do I still give thanks? You see, we title our series, Turning the World Upside Down, as a response of us as Christians and the work that God will do through us in this world. But if we look at this last year, we could say that our worlds have turned, been turned upside down. Some of us have lost jobs and our livelihoods. Businesses have shut down. Unemployment's about to run out. We, some of us had had major interruptions where we, were, we haven't been able to see our loved ones. Some of us haven't been able to grieve some of our losses. Some of us are stealing, still dealing with the depression and the isolation, uh, that loneliness that, of being in a lockdown. Some of us are dealing with, with some major addictions in our lives without the support of a group. Some of our students their future plans of going to college or getting a job afterward have been disrupted. Some of us have lost loved ones in the middle of all this. Some of us have gotten sick from this virus and we're still feeling the devastating effects. So in this, how do I pray? How do I rejoice? 
How do I give thanks? Let's take a look at these commands a little closer. You see, he's saying rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. There's a common thread that connects these. Paul's giving us the imperative verb. If we're looking at this grammatically, he's giving us an imperative verb, and it's followed immediately by the adverb that tells us how we ought to accomplish this, in what fashion. In other words, this is what he's saying. If you're going to rejoice, do it always. If you're going to pray, don't stop, don't cease. Do it, and if you're going to, if you're going to give thanks, do it at all times regardless of your circumstances. Paul's call to the Thessalonian church, a church steeped in persecution, is to rejoice. You see, this term, rejoice, is a call to joy. As a matter of fact, the early church, it was more than just a word of worship. It was a salutation. They would say hello by saying rejoice always. They would say goodbye by saying rejoice always. This was a way of them way for them to remind themselves that this was God's will for them. It was a very countercultural way to live. They were full of joy despite the persecution they faced. And so Paul is able to make this command, or he's able to write this command to them because of, an in, of a distinction he's making. There's a distinction here between joy and happiness. You see, they're not the same thing. We're happy when good things happen to us. We experience a good moment or we acquire something great and we're, we're elated, we're happy. You get, a, you get a race, you buy your favorite car, you meet the person of your dreams, things are good. Because we like to be happy, we get into this pursuit of happiness and sometimes to our detriment. It's not bad to be happy. But when that becomes our goal, we get into a chase. We get, we get into this pursuit where we're always chasing down happiness. And the thing about happiness is the happiness of today is not enough for tomorrow. We're seeking it in greater measure. And that's why we ha we've become this culture of always looking for the upgrade, always looking for the next better thing. We're always looking for the bigger. We're always looking for the better. We're always looking for the fancier in our lives. And sometimes we mistake this for joy. What happens instead of a race, you find out you're getting laid off. Or instead of that promising relationship, you break up. In those moments, some of us get into a tailspin, getting depressed and find it feeling like our world is crashing around us. Happiness is a temporary response to fleeting things, while true joy is an eternal reaction to an eternal reality. Happiness is situational. Joy is permanently affixed on the reality of who God is and who we are in him. Joy looks at who God is, what he has done in our past, his faithfulness in our present, and the hope for our future. Joy looks beyond our circumstances and focuses our gaze on Christ. So no matter what we face, we're still able to find joy. We're still able to rejoice. We may not be happy in the midst of our trial or in the midst of sorrow, but we can surely be joyful. Paul says rejoice always. 
It may seem countercultural, but make it a norm. It may seem unnatural, but make it natural in your life. In an age of, in an age of despair, choosing joy is a revolutionary act. And we can only do that with God's help. We can only do that with God's presence. Joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. It's not something that we can will into our lives. It's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit fills us with joy. It is found in God's presence. When we're in the midst of our chaos, let's rejoice in Christ's work in us. What we focus on will bring us joy. In the middle of all this chaos, it's easy to focus on the things that we're experiencing in the moment. Paul's reminding us, take your gaze off of those things and focus on what God has to say. Read scripture, sing songs, be reminded of God's faithfulness to you. Surround yourself with people of joy. Surround yourself with stories of God's faithfulness and God's goodness in the past. Remind yourself of the promises that you have in scripture. Be confident in your hope for the future. When we focus on our salvation through Christ, that God works all things together for our good, that we have victory in Christ, that nothing can separate us from God's love, that God provides for us richly in God's peace, that, we get, that God is working for our healing, that we find no matter what our circumstances are, we can have joy. What you feed is what's going to grow. In the midst of this pandemic and unrest, it is important for us to stay informed, yes. But it's widely important that we turn off our media at times and focus on what God is saying to us. Find joy. Find joy in the simple things of life. Find joy in spending time with your loved ones. Find joy in investing in relationships. Find joy in caring for each other. Find joy in loving one another. Find joy in blessing your neighbor. Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice always. His next command to us is pray without ceasing. There is an intimate connection between the first and the second command. A prayerful heart is a joyful heart. You see, sometimes this, this verse can be a little confusing because if you read it, it says, pray without ceasing. Is Paul really asking that we ought to spend our days on our knees 24-7? Is it possible? It may not be possible to pray in that sense, but it is possible to be prayerful constantly and consistently. It's possible for us to remain in an attitude of prayer, to remain in an attitude of communing with Jesus, with God, all throughout our day. Prayer should be a habit that we do that's natural and regular, yes, on our knees, but it also should be something that we do and that we are part of all throughout our day. In 1982, the Today Show in New York City invited Billy Graham to be on their show for a live interview. So when he arrived at the studio, the program producer informed Graham's assistant that they had separated a room for Billy Graham to, to get ready and to pray, pray in. 
The assistant thanked the producer for their generous, uh, generosity and told them that Mr. Graham would not need the room. And the producer was a bit shocked that a world-famous Christian leader would not wish to pray before being on national live TV. Graham's assistant responded with this. You see, Mr. Graham started praying the moment he woke up this morning. He prayed while eating breakfast. He prayed on the way over here in the car. He will probably be praying during this interview. Prayer was natural, was constant and consistent. A good way to illustrate prayer is often like breathing. We breathe in, we take in God's promises, we take in God's word, we take in God's counsel, and we breathe out our prayers, we breathe out our cares, we breathe out what's in our hearts back to him. And just as natural as breathing is to human beings, prayer is to Christians. See, God is seeking intimacy with us. Intimacy is found in communication. If we've made a habit of communing and being intimate with God when the sun is shining, it is so much easier to rejoice when the storms come. Henry Nouwen says, as involved as we are in unceasing thinking, so we are to be, so we are to be in unceasing prayer. We're good at worrying. We're good at constantly focusing on the negative. But he's saying, as much as you do that, pray. Prayer opens up the avenue for God to display his power in our lives. Another author writes it this way, our prayers lay the track down on which God's power can come. Like a mighty locomotive, his power is irresistible, but it cannot reach us without those rails. But prayer is more than just the moment spent on our knees. It is vital that each of us separate time for that, but it is just as crucial to maintain an attitude of prayer, prayerfulness all throughout our day. In the midst of mowing the lawn, relaxing on the beach, during a workout, laying in bed, it is possible for us to commune with God. See, Paul has in mind that prayer is to be important and natural part of our lives. He wants it to be something that we simply cannot avoid even if we try. We are to pray consciously, deliberately, repeatedly, and persistently. In a sense, we could broaden the scope of our prayers to all our interactions, words, and actions. And when that happens, everything that we do and say become prayers to God. And finally, Paul is saying this to the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances. Giving thanks in all things, if we really think about it, is one of the hardest things to do as Christians. It's a hard demand that scripture requires of us. Paul tells us to give thanks in all things. As Christ followers, we can do this because of the perspective we have. We can do this because we know of what God is doing. You see, for us, we sometimes have a hard time giving thanks for even the simple things in life, the simple blessings in life. One reason is that we're used to having so much. We simply assume that we have all the good things, that we will always have all the good things in life. Another reason is sometimes we're too prideful to be grateful. We don't want to admit that God is a provider of all good things. 
and that we're simply his stewards. Being thankful requires us to be humble and to have faith in God. When we have these things, we can be grateful. We can look at the good things and always say thank you. But it takes faith to look at the rough and the bad and still say thank you. You see, we can say thanks, we can give thanks in the rough things because of the perspective we have. And that perspective is this. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who trust in him, for those who love him. It's not that all things are good, but instead that he uses all things, the good and the bad, for the good of those who trust in him. For those who do not trust Christ, there's no reason to be thankful in all things. It would even be foolish. But for the Christ follower, it's a matter of faith. In moments of pain, confusion, heartbreak, etc., when we give thanks, we give thanks by focusing on the things that God can do with those painful moments. Living a life of thankfulness is to live a life of faith. We may not see, we may not understand and comprehend what God is accomplishing in the moment, but we know that he is doing something. He is in action. And so we can give thanks anyway. How do you be thankful? You see, thankful is an intentional act. For us as Christians, we ought to find ways for us to be intentional in our thanksgiving. I'm reminded of a person who said anytime he saw a penny, maybe it's on the floor, maybe it's an, uh, on a dresser at home, he would say thanks. Just it, he connected that sight of a penny to giving thanks. Maybe this might be a tougher one for a lot of us. Every time your phone buzzes, just say a word of thanks. Every time you do something that you do throughout your day, just say thanks. Thankfulness is intentional. It's hard, but we have to make it a part of our day. In the midst of our uncertainty, be certain of God's will for you. And God's will is that you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. We're unable to do this on our own. That's the reality. And that's why God promises us help. He promises us his Holy Spirit. He enables us to pray continually and to be in dialogue with him throughout every part of our day. He enables us to find joy when we're, an, we're, we're having a hard time. He enables us to give thanks in all circumstances. So today, as you go into your day or as you go into your week, do this. Be certain, even in your uncertainties, of the will of God. The will of God for you to be rejoicing, prayer, to be in prayer, and to give thanks. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercies to us, Lord, even in the midst of uncertainty, that we can be certain of your will for us. Lord, help us as your followers to be thankful in all circumstances, to pray regardless of what's happening, to be in prayer at all times, and to rejoice always. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.